Dr. Frances McGarry, podcast host of First Online with Friends and It's No Place Like Art, featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the arts to make our world a richer, deeper, kinder place to live. As many of you know, I was a high school theater teacher who dedicated 30 plus years creating opportunities for students to explore, expand, and extol their talents to be all that they could be. That required taking risks, exposing their weaknesses in the hope of finding their truth, their search to discover who they are and what they want to stand for. What does it mean to be real? I recently listened to an episode of Morning Edition, produced by Elizabeth Blair, senior producer, reporter on the arts desk of NPR News. She talked about how The Velveteen Rabbit, a children's book by Marjorie Williams, celebrating its 100th year of publication, might seem out of place in the age of 24-7 social media, hot takes, and so-called real housewives. And yet, a rabbit tail story about authenticity still resonates to this day. What does it mean to be real? The main character in The Velveteen Rabbit is a simple toy stuffed with sawdust and ears lined with pink sateen. He feels inadequate next to the fancier mechanical toys who are full of modern ideas and pretended they were real. In the story, the rabbit is elated when he finally hears the boy refer to him as real. Writer Laurel Davis Huber, author of the novel, The Velveteen Daughter, says Marjorie Williams' story has particular meaning to people who maybe have an illness or just in general feel like an outsider for any reason whatsoever. Similarly, the part that grabbed me by the heart, as it did Huber's, was when the skin horse tells the rabbit, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly. except to people who don't understand. My guest today, Dr. Nikki Beer, a bi-queer writer and author of her recently renowned collection of poems, Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes, asks us, not unlike the Velveteen Rabbit, what's real? There's a lot of figuring out how you belong. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me, Fran. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, inherently posed in your title is an implied oxymoron. Real, phonies, genuine fakes. How does this zany, humorous, <laughs> gut-wrenching collection of poems challenge us to weigh in on what kind of person we are? I think... 
the answer to that question would be the book is trying to engage with those ideas in the same way that the world is trying to engage with those ideas. In one way or another, the world is always challenging us to justify ourselves as real or genuine, to present the communities that we're a part of as real or genuine in comparison to say like the status quo or whatever the dominant group is. So in a way, if you really start to pay attention to your own life, there are ways in which I think we're always being put on the defensive in terms of our realness, our trueness, our authenticity, or ways in which we're obliged to hide our real selves or our authentic selves in the name of safety or comfort. And so really, I think of my book as just a reflection of, of the culture and the society that I find myself living in. And how did the evolution of this story, you know, as, as a playwright or teaching playwright, the process is that it happens on that day in this time. There's a sense of mm-hmm. urgency. What's the arc or the the creative arc, I guess is what I'm asking, of how you define the ideas and sequence the the poems. That's, well, sequencing poems for a book of poems is always such a unique challenge because yes, you are trying to find a kind of narrative arc and people don't necessarily expect a book of poems to have a kind of narrative arc. They think of poems as these separate things Um, But when you are arranging a book of poems, you are trying to have certain books chime with one another or echo each other's ideas or themes. So I I found myself very surprised as I was putting the book together that there were more poems about grief than I expected to uh, have in the book. And a lot of them tend to accumulate towards the end. So I found myself curious to explore how do we say how do we look at these poems that engage with a lot of ideas of fakery and phoniness in pop culture and how does that eventually become a concluding place where the book starts interrogating ideas of grief and so there's kind of like these interesting ideas where the book goes from looking at ideas of authenticity and and realness and starts to very slowly engage with ideas of mortality and that was a surprise to me. That was not something I had in mind when I was putting the book together. But as I was laying all the poems out on the floor, as I do, <laughs> I print them all out and just lay them all out. On I was surprised as I started to cluster them together to find, oh, okay, these poems talk to each other in this way about, about magic, about queerness. And then I just had this little cluster of poems at the end that really engaged very explicitly with grief and mortality. And I said, oh, that's a really interesting place to wind up and can I still end up in a hopeful place in spite of engaging with the ideas of mortality and grief. So that's that's kind of how the arc of the book was shaped. When you create that process, I, I can identify with putting all the ideas out. I'm in the process of, of writing a book based on my experience with the Young Playwrights Festival. And similarly, you just write these ideas out and then visually for me, I saw the whole book, you know, and, and it happened. And I realized this is what I want to say. You mentioned how your poems are dealing with questions of authenticity. And 
I hope you're not offended by the fact that I'm comparing your ideas to a children's book. But <laughs> I think never. <laughs> uh, I think it's very profound that it's the hundredth anniversary of the Velveteen Rabbit. It has never been out of print. Isn't that amazing? And what what struck me is how it resonates to us to this day that we need to question ourselves about truth, about who we really are. What poems illustrate some of those ideas? And if you could share some of them. I think, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Velveteen Rabbit because I think childhood is such a foundational place where our relationship with truth begins. I think in childhood, we're being given certain stable truths that we trust. And then as we get older, those start to destabilize. Our parents become less and less infallible. Our teachers, no disrespect, uh, <laughs> become more and more human. Uh, the institutions that we're supposed to rely on start to seem suspect. We start to develop a certain amount of skepticism with them. So I think a poem in the book like Elegy, this is a poem that dramatizes a child's moment when for the first time in, in her life, another child dies. And it's this idea that the child is suddenly confronting the fact that death can happen to other children. And of course, that's a very white, very middle-class American privileged position to be unaccustomed to death in childhood. And so for that to happen, it becomes this kind of recalibration for the child that, oh, this child died and that means I can die. And that means all children can die. There's not some sort of rule that protects children. And so that's a kind of, I think, a recalibration with the truth. And also there's this kind of shocking revelation for the child when she admits in the first line of the poem, I never liked the dead boy. And that in a way is a kind of a shocking thing for the child to suddenly realize that this child died and it's sad and everybody's crying. But at the same time, I didn't like him. And so I think that that's an example of kind of like a way that very early on in life, our relationship with the truth gets changed in very profound ways that really do affect us for the rest of our lives. Is any of this autobiographical? It's not exactly. It's something that I've kind of, I've borrowed from bits and pieces from several people over the years. In a way, it's, it's not an uncommon story. That's the thing. I think a lot of people have stories like this from their childhood when something somewhat similar happens. So in a way, it's kind of a, an amalgamation of many different things that many people have told me. Except, oh, wait, you know what? You know, it's not made up. At the end of the poem, there's an image of a deflated rubber balloon hanging in the rafters of the school auditorium. That's real. That is from Norwood Avenue Elementary School in Northport, New York. I sometimes wonder if that little deflated balloon hanging in the rafters of the auditorium is still there. You know, as a teacher, I'm always curious about whether I had any impact in the art of, of your career. Uh, so selfishly, I'm just basking in your achievement for what it's worth. I remember when we did, you, you had graduated by then, but uh, when we did the Velveteen Rabbit in the theater works class, there was a tall, skinny, gay kid, Asian gay kid. And uh, he did the costume designs for the show. And he worked with Eve Terry, who was the costume 
a teacher. I had no idea. I, you know, I didn't look at kids, gay, bi, queer, trans, whatever. I just wanted to create a space where kids felt safe, that they could create, that they could make mistakes. And sadly, the young man committed suicide. And I always have to go back to that moment and this, this velveteen rabbit and this idea that we have governments and governors who are, don't say gay, putting who these young people are at risk. Does your book, does, your, does the voices from your poems address and, and validate who they are and what they are? Absolutely. And I think it has to do with how the book engages with ideas of performance. A lot of the poems engage with uh, films, with acting, with performances by various people, including magicians. And so there's this way in which performance is this interesting interrogation of authenticity and the performance of a fictional character, a fictional self. And I think it's relevant in terms of this book is also much more explicitly me writing about my queerness in a way that I haven't before. It's not that I haven't been writing about it. My poems have always been clear. I'm just being a lot more direct with it than I ever have. And I think that may be one of the reasons why so many queer kids are often drawn to the performance arts, because it becomes this kind of space where you can both be your true self, but also wear a mask at the same time. So it is like you all have access to your own authenticity, but you're still protected by the fiction of performance at the same time. So I, I think in terms of queerness and performativity, the book is very interested in those things. And I can, and I can say from personal experience, you know, having taken your theater classes and having been interested in performance since I was a very young child, that is certainly true for me, that the theater space that you created in high school was definitely a refuge. Even the space that the class met in was this very dark, it was a black box theater. And so there was something about the way the space was kind of wrapped in darkness and had this slope down to the theater that just felt like an entering into this otherworldly liminal space that was very comforting and very soothing. What quality, again, play versus poetry, playwriting versus poetry. Characters speak to me in, in a play. Do characters speak in poetry? Absolutely. Persona poetry is one of my favorite kinds of poetry to read, and it's one of my favorite kinds of poetry to write. And it's, it's the kind of poetry that I encourage my undergraduate students to play with whenever they can, because it is this way of taking on a voice that isn't yours, and still finding a way to speak your truths through that voice. And it also, persona allows you to adopt a voice of someone that isn't necessarily very heroic or very nice. It allows you to be transgressive in ways that maybe you don't feel comfortable speaking as yourself. So it's an incredible vehicle for play in poetry as well as clearly it is for the theater. And similarly, you know, um, as an actor now, I have, you know, and also being an English teacher, I, I savor how the words can change by being read aloud. Could you, you know, it, poetry is very oral. 
A-U-R-A-L. And when I, I read your poems the first time around, and then today what I did was I, during, during the week, I read them out loud to myself. And there was like totally different meaning to it. Can you give an example of, of when you're writing that? Like, how do you hear the poem as, as well as see it on the page? When I am editing, when I start to feel like I have a, an actual draft that I'm bashing into shape, I do start reading the draft aloud. And that is how I start to edit when I'm really getting into it to edit and revise. Because for me, it has to sound good. It has to be comfortable in my voice as I am speaking it out loud. And this is a, an editing technique that I also recommend for my students. If it doesn't sound right when you're saying it out loud, it probably isn't right on the page as well. And so the, simply speaking poem out loud is very revealing. You can't, you can't hide when you're reading a poem out loud. And it really exposes the rhythms of language. It exposes sonic play. It exposes where you pause, where you take your breaths, where you hesitate, where you forge on ahead, where you don't allow the reader breaks. And so it's the, the voice is, you know, just one of the most important editing tools that I have. Example, can you read something from your course? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. What would you like to hear? Well, I'm kind of thinking with what's going on with lies that are going on in our current situation where people are lying and then denying it. I really loved um, the excerpts from the updated handbook to mendacity, a habit of lying frequently. I looked it up to make sure. <laughs> mendacity is untruthfulness, habit of lying frequently, being less than honest. It would be my pleasure to read this. Thank you. Excerpts from the updated handbook to mendacity. The lie, you write with pencil. You write with a stolen pen. You'd stitched into the lining of a coat you donated to the church rummage sale. You tell to the teacup when it asks where its saucer is. You fatten on corn in your cellar. You wrap up in a silk handkerchief and bury in your neighbor's yard. You dress up like your wife and take to brunch. The lie, you split down its length from which you extract burning seeds with the tip of your knife. You leave undusted like a hated figurine. The lie, you leave between pages 258 and 259 of the history of the Magna Carta in the library of a small town in Indiana. You whisper to the divot, of your mother's inoculation scar. You tell the centipede living in your wallet. You try to rhyme with harmless. The lie you pay someone else to tell you. You devour in a hungry, unthinking handful. You forget you've told before, but this time you tell it to his brother. You tell the dentist as the smell of drilled bone vapor vaporizes into the ceiling. The lie you make with maps. You make with surnames. You tell with maybe. You tell while showing 
your empty hands. Oh, gosh. I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of us who are intimidated by poetry, how would you go about explaining, interpreting, you know, what do we want to get out of this? Yes, I think in terms of this poem, I'll just talk about what I had in mind as I was putting it together because I was interested in talking about lies and fakery and illusion. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if there was a book that specified every kind of lie there was? Mm-hmm. You're just this sort of enormous, sprawling, unthinkably long book that probably exists in like multiple, multiple, multiple volumes that was just there to categorize every species of lie. And so that, the idea of that, that idea, that book, that was my invention. And I started thinking, well, okay, well, if there was an excerpt from that book, what kinds of lies would be described in there? And so I started thinking about the kinds of big lies, the kinds of little lies, the kinds of general lies that we tell really specific personal lies, because in a way, I think we could all write an autobiography about the lies that we've told in our lives. Some hugely harmful, some just uh, minor. And so that was that was my idea. And I, I like to think that even if you can't find uh, a lie that you told literally in the poem, that I hope that the poem makes you think about the other kinds of lies that you've told. And to think about, you know, what would it look like the sum of all your lies being bundled together? And the end of the poem, especially, I was thinking about you know, these last lines, the lie you make with maps, you make with surnames, you tell with maybe you tell while showing your empty hands. This isn't something that's necessarily visible in the poem, but it was very much on my mind is thinking specifically about whiteness and the way that whiteness is a kind of lie that we tell ourselves or a way that we whiteness facilitates certain lies so for instance whiteness in terms of the lie that we make with maps there are so many lies that we have made with maps that benefit and facilitate white supremacy and the lies that we make with surnames the way that we've uh, obliterated the surnames of others or the way that we've made surnames uh, modeled to surnames of whiteness as opposed to what uh, uh, surnames in other languages or just how names are in other languages. And I think especially you tell while showing your empty hands this certain lie of innocence that whiteness that whiteness perpetuates the demands that we participate in in and some way in which we're complicit. Yes, and we're on the same role here. The, yeah. That what seems a little white quote-unquote lie can do mm-hmm. a lot of damage. And exactly. we continue to be complicit in that. And that's kind of the theme that runs through the collection, you know, the duplicity, the complicity that we have. We're going to have to wrap this up, Nikki. And oh my gosh, we could go on for hours here. I I would like you to to close with a message. You know, what what is your hope? What is your outreach? What is your your goal through your art? to make change, to open conversations, and to make our world a richer, deeper, kinder place to live. It's my belief that art is 
a perpetual signal to others that they are not alone. But that is, I think, what every work of art in the end is trying to say. And so if art that I have made at all ever makes someone feel less alone, then I will feel like I have <laughs> done my job because that's what art has done for me. It has made me feel less alone in moments in my life when I have felt the most isolated, the most in despair, the most lonely. So for me, being an artist is all about paying it forward to others. And I just feel grateful that this is a tradition that I can participate in. Thank you, Nikki. And congratulations again. I will be posting the uh, blog to promote uh, your book, Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes. I wish you continued success. And what a wonderful circle that we have connected again. So proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fran. It's been an absolute pleasure. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hair Media and recorded at Wheat Sheet Studio Productions. Mm-hmm.